Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Guillermo del Toro, as recommended by Sean Meehan, and this week's episode, I'll be talking about uh, Guillermo del Toro's 2001 Spanish-language film, The Devil's Backbone. And now... Uh, since it has been over a year since I have done one of these individual recommendation episodes, uh, before I get into it, I'd kind of like to, uh, restate my mission statement, I guess, if you will, because, uh, if you're a returning listener, you already know this, but if you are a new listener, then I kind of want to, uh, catch up to speed as to what I do movies badly is all about. But as the, the introduction that I just spouted out, uh, highlights, I am an amateur film critic. I've been doing, uh, film podcasting, film blogging, uh, interviews for a long time, um, but I do not consider myself uh, an expert by any means. Um, I am a film enthusiast, and, uh, and, and though I am enthusiastic and love films, I have a lot of blind spots, and I have a lot of opinions that are against the grain, going against consensus. Um, and for a long time, I felt that there was not something wrong with that. I'm like, mm, maybe I'm just not seeing something, or maybe my... Basically, I was I was doing mental gymnastics to kind of figure out, how is my opinion wrong? Because this is what everybody else says or thinks about Ingmar Bergman or about martyrs, which are <laughs> two strange and yet somehow connected uh, spiritually examples that just popped in my head for some reason. But uh, and it took me a while to kind of come around to the fact that, uh, no, it's fine to have my opinion. My opinion is valid. Your opinion as a listener, as a, a, a reader, as a commenter is valid. If you disagree with a critic or if you disagree with consensus, that's valid. And that's what this podcast is all about, validating our opinions uh, as informed enthusiasts, passionate viewers and listeners of all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not an expert, uh, and that's okay. You don't have to be an expert either to enjoy film or to have your opinions. And so um, that's that's what this podcast is all about, learning, um, dialogue, coming together as a community over these things and kind of realizing it's okay if I don't agree with everybody else or if I have an opinion which is off the beaten path because we are all complex machines and we all process and take in a work of art in a different way and um, your opinion is, is oftentimes informed by your environment, by your formative uh, influences in your life. Just like that piece of art was informed and influenced by outside forces for that screenwriter, for that director, for everything basically. So um, that's what this basically is all about. So I hope you're on board with that. Um, if not, uh, I, I don't know, then why, why, why are you listening, I suppose? Um, but hopefully you're on board with that, because uh, I have a lot to talk about with The Devil's Backbone, uh, which uh, was a film that I... It was a different film than what I expected it to be. And between saying that, and as you recall my comments about Crimson Peak in the introductory episode, seems to be a trend when it comes to... Um, I don't want to say Guillermo del Toro films, but Guillermo del Toro uh, horror films. And I think that comes, uh, that is kind of nested or, or rooted in the fact that I don't think Guillermo del Toro makes horror films. 
I think Guillermo del Toro makes terror films. Um, that sounds very snooty and pretentious, I'm sure. And terror is not going to be... Oh, man, I was about to say terror is not a section uh, in your local blockbuster. Blockbusters don't exist anymore. So I guess terror is not a section you're going to find on Netflix. Or terror is not a genre that studios are going to advertise a film as when you go to see it or look it up on IMDb. Um, but I think there is an important distinction between terror and horror. Um, here... Terror and horror being defined as sort of um, uh, terror, sort of being the uh, the anticipation and dread that sort of um, precedes a horrifying or horrific event, uh, and horror sort of being more of a reaction to something uh, seen, heard, or sort of um, experienced. Uh, thank you, Wikipedia, for that. Um, and here's why I, I think that's the case for for the Devil's Backbone is because there's. For one thing, there, there's no real jump scares in this movie. There, there there's one uh, when Carlos is uh, trying to hide from Santi, the ghost, and he and he's hiding in the closet, and you see him peek through the keyhole, and suddenly the eye is right there, and there's a loud, you know, jarring music. That's really the only like jump scare. Um, that's the, really the only one that's trying to get you. That's trying to like really elicit a sudden visceral reaction. Del Toro isn't really concerned with scaring you. Um, uh, and side note, this is also why I, I don't think that Guillermo del Toro is right for a Lovecraft adaptation. He's not interested in, um, in, in scaring you. You know, he is interested in the terror, in the dread, in the buildup, in the anticipation. Whereas the climactic events um, in Lovecraft short stories, whether it be at the beginning where the narrator is reflecting back on what happened, or whether it's the conclusion of a story of someone committing suicide, or going insane, or realizing their own existential non-significance, insignificance, I guess is the proper word, um, Lovecraft is a lot about reaction. That's not to say he doesn't create a mood and a tone. He certainly does, but uh, the, the, the response to the event or the creature, to the revelation, is, is the crux of, of Lovecraft's short story. So, Getting back to, to Guillermo del Toro. Um, but yeah, I don't think he's interested in scaring you. Um, I think he's interested in, 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 I don't want to say unsettling you, but leaving you with a mood or a feeling that saturates the entire movie. Uh, but more of an influential, influential, more of an emotional thing than a visceral thing. Um, and I think that's uh, perfectly embodied... You see that in, in, embodied in the interactions with Santi, with uh, the ghost, uh, between him and Carlos. Um, because of, of sort of the, how the interactions evolve, they have this evolution from terror to, to, to peaceful almost, at the very end. Um, think of the first time we see him proper. And I'm not saying the first time you see Santi when there's that, uh, that kind of... Uh, did we see it or did we did we not thing where we we see him for a, a half second sort of in the doorway and then Carlos is distracted and looks back and Santi's not there. I'm talking about the first time we see Santi proper. It's not um, a trick. It's not a jump scare. It's not um, <clears throat> uh, a, a a sudden camera movement. In, in fact, it's full on. We see his face. We see the camera kind of a um, <clears throat> panning, not even panning, on, on this dolly or the cam, kind of moving across the room following Carlos until we get behind the pillar 
where Santi is standing, and we see his face. We see him full on. Um, and in his in his expression, in his stance, it's almost as though he's hiding from Carlos. There's sort of immediately a personality or, or an emotion attached to him. It's not, oh my God, look at how terrifying this is. It's this slow reveal of like, hey, what is what is this? Who is this? What's, what is he doing here? And of course, it's also side note, wonderful to kind of see uh, in full glory, the design of Santi as a ghost, which is something that Sean and I talked about this, like how the ghosts, the spirits, the monsters in, or or the others in Guillermo del Toro films are very much um, shaped by their circumstances or, or their appearance takes uh, is, is greatly influenced or adapted to whatever environment created them or shaped them. And so Santi, being a child who was drowned um, after suffering head trauma, um, has the sort of the, the black eyeballs from, of what would, ha- what would actually be the case from someone who suffered severe head trauma, you know, the, the, the black eight ball um, eyeballs. Um, he's got the head wound, and then his blood is sort of, it's not dripping down, it's floating up and out of him as though he is still underwater, as though the, it is still uh, diffusing it and sort of filtering out in through the water that's around him. And it's very cool, and it's very eerie. Um, it's not scary, but it's eerie. It sort of unsettles you a little bit, but because of the slow, almost sort of gentle reveal of him, you're not, you're unsettled or you're a little bit scared, but it's not, boo. It's not that. It's just kind of like, what is this? I'm not really sure. Um, and then when we see him again the second time, um, which does ultimately kind of culminate in the, the closet, the, the keyhole sequence, um, the way that Del Toro chooses to shoot it is, once again, the camera is very much on, like on Santi the whole time. You see him full-bodied. You see him walking down the hall. You see him coming towards Carlos. And sure, I could understand if you are a viewer are once again, sort of unsettled and scared as to what's happening because there's something in a way, um, sort of like a lot of Korean horror films, that there's something even more scary about being able to see the phantom, the ghost, the specter kind of coming at you versus just a sudden appearance. There's something even more upsetting about that. Still, the fact that the camera is sort of framing Santee fully and kind of showing him as a... uh, a full form almost sort of in a way sort of gives him a respect he is a person he is a character and uh it's kind of funny because if you notice that sequence the camera is not telling you that you should be scared carlos is telling you you should be scared which makes sense because we are experiencing this story as carlos is experiencing it he's our protagonist he's our surrogate you know he's our entryway into the story the camera the lighting is not doing anything uh manipulative or deceptive to kind of make you feel scared it's not there in the editing it's not there in cinematography it's there in carlos it's there in how he's reacting to it in a way um if you would have removed carlos's uh performance or even if del toro would have told him like hey just play this straight which you wouldn't do that in a in a, a, a genre film like this but if you would have had the actor who was playing carlos kind of being more curious instead of terrifying and trying to get out that becomes an entirely different sequence. The mood becomes different. The emotion becomes different. Santi is not the one who is trying to, to, to is not the one that's, that's generating the fear in, this, in that sequence. It is Carlos who is generating the fear or telling us that we should be afraid. And then of course the ultimate uh, or, or the, the final sort of manifestation in Santi is at the end treating him as an equal. 
um, it, it, you know, once once the, the the plot has developed in a certain way, and we sort of realize what has become uh, or, or what became of Santi and how uh, Jacinto, I believe it's pronounced Jacinto. If there are any um, uh, Spanish language listeners out there, I I am apologizing for my mispronunciation. I think it's Jacinto, uh, the main bad guy who looks a little bit like Eli Roth. Um, once we see what his, once it's revealed what role he had in, in Santi's death, um, and it's sort of like, okay, uh, and the kids are all kind of preparing for this final confrontation, if you will. Um, it's, you know, Carlos, the way that they, they sort of shoot it is Carlos is kind of bent down, and you just see Santi behind him, and the camera just kind of moves up, and, and, and uh, um, why am I forgetting the, the tone of this? Shifts the focus, basically. Rack focus, there we go. Uh, See, I'm not an expert. I'm just an enthusiast. Um, you, you know, you see Santi standing behind Carlos. Carlos doesn't realize that he's there, but as the camera moves up and, and he turns around, there's a rack focus. It, there's nothing terrifying about it whatsoever. There's nothing. Santi is revealed as a regular character would be, not as a ghost, but just as a person who is there and part of this plot, part of this uh, development, just like all the other characters are. Um, having said that, let me add a little caveat of, like, my only real criticism with The Devil's Backbone is, um, as satisfying as it is to see Santi's, uh, Santi kind of get his, his revenge or see that, that, that circle, that cycle complete, Jacinto killed, uh, Santi, um, before the events of the film started, um, Santi is ultimately the one who is responsible for Jacinto dying by holding him underwater, um, <laughs> It seems like Santi didn't really, or, or, or the boys didn't really need Santi's help. Uh, they stab him multiple times with <laughs> sharpened sticks. He's basically going to bleed out um, until they push him in, and then Santi obviously holds him underwater. I, I think it would have been a little bit more satisfying if it was just sort of they set a trap for Jacinto and sort of end up getting him caught in the water so he thinks he's... I, I don't know, easily going to get out until all of a sudden he can't get out of the water because there's something holding him down. Um, but that's that's a minor squabble because um, I still think it's it's quite satisfying to see Santi sort of get his revenge. Also, it is a little bit weird that the the one phrase Santi keeps repeating is "many of you will die," or you know, many of many of them will die. Basically, he he's sort of prognosticating um, the. The fire, the, the the horrific act that ends Act Two in this film, and it's kind of strange, I guess, that that sort of a ghost is given the ability to sort of see into the future. I mean, um, I know that that Santi that Santi obviously saw Yacinto trying to get into the the safe and obviously try to get to the gold, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, <laughs> There's a, a great reveal that he knows that there's going to be all these deaths at the end. Like that, that didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. But I'm I'm willing to forgive that because of how much I, I uh, enjoyed this film. Um, and so, as I really said, like Del Toro isn't really interested in scaring you. He's just sort of interested, or, or he's interested in sort of momentarily uh, scaring you. But he but he's instead more concerned with emphasizing the gravity of horrible things that people do to each other. And, and specifically in this movie, uh, we see that through the through the, the lens of, I guess, of, of or, or the context of 
people doing terrible things to each other in the context of the Spanish Civil War, um, which was a, a, a war, quite simply, incredibly simplistically, I, I'm reducing it to fought between um, freedom fighters and fascists. Now, I don't um, know a, a lot about the Spanish Civil War. I don't really remember being taught much of it in school. I kind of had to look up a lot of it and read a, a little bit on it in order to do research on this podcast. But um, um, <clears throat> as I said, it was sort of a, a war that was fought between leftist freedom fighters and right-wing nationalists. And it was a war in which the fascists ultimately won. I mean, this happened pre-World War II or in the build-up to World War, uh, World War II. Um, and um, and the the bomb uh, that kind of sits in the courtyard is sort of a its own ghost or its own relic of this uh, these horrific events uh, and, and, and it's not the only metaphorical ghost but obviously you have you have Santi as well Santi was killed by Jacinto um, who if not explicitly said so certainly seems to be aligned with uh, the nationalists and so what's interesting about um, I don't want to say what's interesting about the Spanish Civil War but what's interesting about the parallels that del toro is drawing between the spanish civil war and this film is that basically within the context of what was happening at the time in the in in not just in the country but in the world was that um spain was basically on its own during this conflict uh which obviously that's what the term civil war would imply but what i mean is the freedom fighters were basically on their own um, in this and you kind of see that talked about a little bit um between um carmen and uh, what is his name? Sorry, give me a minute while I look it up. Uh, Dr. Casares? Uh, Casares? I don't know. Once again, I apologize for my pronunciation, but Carmen um, and, and Dr. Casares, um, they talk about that a little bit in the sense of like there's, you know, you know, sure enough, Madrid is going to fall. They're basically talking about how the nationalists are winning and how no one is coming to their aid. Um, of course, leading up to, to pre or leading up to World War II, um, the Germans and the Italians, you know, the fascists were very much on the side of the nationalists of the Spanish, uh, of the of the the Spanish nationalists. Sorry, it's been a while since I've um, podcasted. I'm a little bit rusty. Kind of, uh, you're hearing me sort of work it out here, um, but that led to a, a feeling of isolation from these from these leftists, from these these uh, freedom fighters. The uh, as we can kind of simplistically say from the good guys they felt very much abandoned alone which is very much how these kids in this orphanage feel you know they've been abandoned by by families they are alone a lot of these as carmen says they're um uh the 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 kids of reds you know reds taking care of reds children um they are the symbol of the abandonment and the death that resulted from this war from parents dying from parents not being able to take care of these kids anymore this this loneliness that was being felt very much by these spanish freedom fighters is embodied in the loneliness of these orphans who have been abandoned by their families and sort of left here to not to die but just to sort of be and to and, and to sort of like look to each other as for a family for a surrogate family um and that and that's very touching as well because of how those relationships develop, specifically between Carlos and Jaime. Jaime, who, of course, comes off at first, is going to seem like he's going to be the bad guy, or at least one of the bad guys. You know, Jacinto may be the big bad, but Jaime is going to somehow factor into this, I'm sure, as one of the, the little bads, maybe. Um, you know, the, the, the henchman right before the final boss, basically. But no, Jaime is himself a complicated character, someone who... Um, 
hurts others because he himself is hurt, which is sort of an embodiment of everybody that's sort of in this little community, this little surrogate family, this isolated community. It's basically broken people taking care of broken people, um, which is something that's very much up Del Toro's alley. You know, we empathize with these people. We connect with them. We relate to them. Um, films that are sort of set in orphanages, um, especially orphanages which sort of have a um, Catholic orphanages, um, we don't need to look very far, um, not even in history, but contemporary uh, times to sort, of, to sort of be aware of the oppressive nature that these sort of things had, sort of how the caretakers, the headmasters, headmistresses, nuns, priests, whatever, the people who, who ran these sort of ran it with like an iron fist, you know, the, the vengeance or, or, or the fear of God, but the fear of God in these people. Which I think is interesting that uh, religion doesn't play a big part in this movie. We certainly see the kids at one point sort of moving around a um, a statue of, of Christ on the cross. But it's also interesting that in one of the classroom scenes, we see it very briefly that over the blackboard where Carmen is writing, there is not a crucifix, but the sort of um, indentation of where a crucifix used to be. It has been taken down. It's not there anymore. Which maybe I think signifies or, or could potentially signify sort of a feeling of abandonment from God, from religion, from uh, a, a institution which is supposed to stand for protection and equality and goodness. And you have these people who are once again been abandoned and left on their own and are not being cared for. Um, but I digress a little bit. Um, broken people taking care of broken people. Um, while that certainly seems like a film set in an orphanage is going to have, you know, the adult characters are going to be the, the hard-ass, the bad ones, you know, we're going to hate them. As soon as I saw Carmen with that prosthetic leg, I knew immediately because of who Del Toro is and because of the kind of characters that he loves and relates to, I knew she was going to be a good person. I knew she was going to be someone that we are going to connect with, that we are going to really emotionally connect with and, and, and who will have an emotional connection with the boys. She didn't have to say anything. As soon as I saw that shot of the prosthetic leg, I thought, ah, she's one of the good ones. Well, she's going to be one of the people that we like, that we are going to be rooting for. Same thing with Dr. Gassars, who himself is also a broken person. It's sort of hinted at or sort of implied he is not physically harmed, he is not mentally harmed, but it is implied that he's impotent. Um, and that... Uh, feeding into uh, another sort of sub-theme of, of toxic masculinity, which is certainly embodied in Jacinto, who is, I think we can all agree on, like, objectively the most attractive person in this movie. It's interesting that the most physically attractive person in this movie is the one that we hate, is the bad person, is the one who is oppressive and evil and also most ashamed of being broken. He himself was an orphanage, He or was an orphanage, Jacinto himself was an orphan. He was raised in this orphanage, and we hear very early on he is ashamed of that. He sort of hates the memory of it. He sort of sees uh, his past in the orphanage as, as a weakness. Um, these other ones, the, these other characters have sort of, um, if not embraced it, then at least learned to live with it or are grappling with it. We see Carmen grappling with it. You know, she is sleeping with Jacinto. And it, and it seems like, or, or what I got from it was almost sort of like she's looking as someone who is physically disabled, looking to be validated by someone who is not. 
uh, someone who seems to be the the embodiment of physical perfection. She's very much looking to to be fulfilled, to be validated by someone who is pretty, who is not an other, who is part of the mainstream. She's sort of she is kind of grappling with it herself. She is a complicated character, but for the most part, everyone else is sort of. Um, it, it, maybe not accepted the fact that they are here and abandoned, but they are living with it. They are working with it. They are trying to make the best of their situation, whereas Jacinto loathes it. He has stews on it. It has festered inside of him, and it has made him a bad, horrible person. He is broken, but he can't accept it. He can't move on. He's instead just sort of let it fester inside of him. Um, and I find that super interesting. That is sort of... Uh, the broken ones are the ones that we love, that we connect with. And the pretty one, he's the bad person. Um, now, I guess this is not a great segue, but since we're talking about looks, why don't we talk about the color palette? Um, that wasn't a great segue, but why not? Let's talk about the color palette, because this is something that was brought up in, in the introductory episode and certainly something I wanted to talk about. And the color palette, really, like, there are these two dichotomous forces or, or, or opposite colors. Maybe you have blue and orange, um, and that's it's it's set right away. I mean, the template is set right away from, I don't remember if it's the opening shot, but one of the opening shots in which you see a bomb being dropped on just the countryside. And the film or, or, or the, the frame is almost entirely blue, except in the vast distance, these popping explosions of orange in which the bombs are dropping. And sets the tone very clear that orange, yellow, red, these are not going to be comforting colors. These are going to be violent colors. These are going to be colors which draw your attention to them because of how they symbolize negativity, basically. Um, which is interesting because in a typically in a horror film, or let's harken back to what we already agreed upon, in a terror film, or a film which involves ghosts or scares or that kind of thing, blue or darkness is typically going to be a thing which is unsafe you know <clears throat> nighttime scenes are going to be the ones where it's like okay the sun is down things are going to be dangerous now and we kind of look to the the bright light of day as the as safety basically as like this is certainty we are sure that there are going to be no ghosts here because the sun is out because it is bright yellow or orange or red or whatever um and yet i actually was texting sean as i was watching the movie that uh Early on, I was actually kind of getting instead like a, a comfort from the blue, from the nighttime scenes. And I think it's because of, a, of, of two things, basically. It's at night when these kids are mostly sort of bonding, when they're kind of coming together, when, they're, when uh, the most important scenes of, their, of their, their bonds forming all seem to be taking place at night. Um, but also because the way that uh, Guillermo Navarro uh, lights and shoots everything is it's blue, but it's not dark and oppressive. You can still see things going on. It's almost as though um, it's dark outside, or, or at least it's nighttime, but there's a soft moonlight, which is sort of making everything sort of unified. That's what I was thinking the entire time was um, there's a very, there's an evenness to how the nighttime scenes are shot and lit. And I don't say that in a bad way. Um, it's not bland. It's just even. Everything sort of comes together. There's sort of a uniformity um, visually and spiritually, and I like that. And if you think of the stark contrast of that, think of the scene when 
Jaime and Carlos are sort of trying to sneak into the kitchen to refill their pitchers of water, which, as we know, Jaime is obviously trying to set up or sabotage Carlos. But as they're sneaking through the courtyard past the bomb, there's an orange light coming from the bedroom where uh, Jacinto and his, um, I guess, bride-to-be um, whose name I'm sorry is unfortunately escaping me. Whose bride to be is a uh, they're they're there together, and while it's an intimate scene, they're they're kissing. It's also um, signifying the character that Carlos is, or, or that um, that Jacinto is, because he's obviously evil. We're going to know that he's evil, and the film is sort of broadcasting that he is because he's bathed. He's just enveloped in this orange light the same kind of orange color and light that we saw at the very beginning when the bombs were dropping sort of immediately kind of creates that visual connection between these two forces of, of, of destruction. Um, and also uh, what's interesting about the, the color palette on the film stock is it also makes the reds of blood really pop um, specifically during the, or exclusively during the daytime scenes when, when everything is bright. Um, there's certainly blood at night uh, during the nighttime scenes, but you don't really get a visceral feel of how horrible it is until you see it in broad daylight. Think of, um, well, basically that, oh my God, that devastating scene after Yusinto sets that fire and leaves the orphanage. And there's the explosion because all the gas cans get cut off and you just see it's such a horrifying scene where uh, Del Toro doesn't spare you. He shows you the dead bodies of children on the ground, um, charred black because of the explosion from the fire. And you just see this destruction. It looks, not coincidentally, very much like a war, like a bombing. Del Toro is showing us the horror, once again, of what people can do to each other. He's not interested in boo, scaring you, he's interested in unsettling you, in, in that emotional horror kind of really settling in your bones. Um, and there was not better, there was no scene that typified it better than after that fire was started. And you just kind of see the damage. And, and, and uh, the doctor is just, he's, he's injured himself, and the blood on him is just so bright, and it just pops, and you just kind of see a... a Oh, you just really get the sense of him being injured, of him being hurt because of how bright and red this blood stands out. Um, and even think about even the water that uh, Santi died in. Um, you typically think of water as blue, as something soothing. And um, it's weird because I was trying to think, uh, or I was thinking basically of, of Del Toro films, and water doesn't seem to be... A comforting or soothing thing until obviously the shape of water which um, spectacularly shattered that uh, pattern but think of scenes in del toro films that feature water and how they're typically associated with bad things whether it be emotions or events um, i mean first and foremost we'll start with this film uh, santi drowning obviously uh, Santi drowning and also the scene in which the bomb is dropped on the orphanage but doesn't explode happens during uh, an intense pouring rain. It's such a haunting visual too when Jaime looks up at the sky and you just sort of see these shadows, these phantoms of these planes until the lightning strikes and you see them backlit. It's a beautiful, horrifying shot. Um, think of Hellboy. 
Um, it, well, yes, Abe Sapien is a water creature, but also Abe Sapien encounters um, those Hellbees kind of underwater, and he gets badly hurt when he's trying to, um, you know, when he discovers their, their little nest of eggs, basically. Um, the scene after Professor Broom dies, his casket being carried out in, a, in the pouring rain as Hellboy stands up above, like, um, watching the, the funeral proceedings. Um, if I remember correctly, um, in Crimson Peak, there is uh, something significant with water. Somebody drowning, and there's those tanks in the basement of the house. And I'm, we'll get to that uh, next week, obviously. And then think of also Pacific Rim, the kaiju, their den, their nest, where they're spawned, where they come from, is a rift deep underneath the Pacific Ocean. Water does not seem to be a thing which is very comforting or very soothing or, or, or a bringer of life in Del Toro films. Um, once again, the <laughs> exception being the entirety of The Shape of Water. Um, and what's interesting, too, is how, um, once we get back to this idea of the color palette and how that inter or, or how that, that is typified or, or, or exemplified, whateverified in the water, the water that Santi dies in it's not blue. It has an orange, almost sort of acidic kind of look to it. It's not water that you want to drink. It's not water that you want to be in. I got the impression watching it, like, if I would fall in this water, it would be warm. It'd be stagnant. It would kind of be disgusting. It looks very much like the the limbo water, which is a, a little bit on the nose. But, yeah, the, the limbo water that the doctor is making, that um, that we see the, the, the fetal corpses in with the, the spinal bifida. Um, there is a, obviously a, a very clear, blatant similarity between the water in which Santi died and the, the limbo water uh, that, the, that the doctor is making in cells in town. Um, and that was very interesting to me, how those two, how those two, uh, how those two colors really kind of stood apart and helped, uh, and helped uh, accentuate everything. Um, and I also just wanted to, uh, I guess, to kind of wrap things up... Uh, while I sort of complained a little bit about um, how Santi's justice came about, there is something so incredibly beautiful about the parallel between the film starting with the death and ending with that final shot of the spirit, the ghost, the phantom of the doctor watching over the kids as they are leaving. Right before he dies, he tells them, I'm never leaving here. And the film opens, uh, one of the openings of the quote is the doctor kind of talking, like, what is a ghost? Is it, um, is it pain? Is it a memory that keeps someone around? Um, and certainly, you know, our introduction to ghosts in this movie is the one who sighs, is Santi, is, is this one who cannot move on because he has something which is unfinished. And so it's when that he finally finished something which he's sort of able to move on, but the, the, full cycle or I guess the foil or the the I don't want to say antithesis uh, to that but uh, how that is sort of matched paralleled whatever I'm not doing myself any favors here am I <laughs> how it, it opens the film opens with a ghost who is hanging around because he has something which is unsettled and closes on a ghost who is there because he has chosen he has chosen to be there because he made a choice that this is going to be his his fate that this is going to be the thing that he chooses to do 
um, with his life is, is such a beautiful parallel. And one thing I talked about with Sean in the intro episode was uh, Del Toro's work with actors and how it seems like things are sort of lost in translation maybe because some of his performances in his English language films are a little bit weird. And I'm eager to sort of revisit that uh, with Crimson Peak because the performances in... The Devil's Backbone are so beautiful. I, I'm not even ashamed to say that I choked up a couple times watching this movie. The first time uh, being when the doctor was reciting the poem to Carmen as she is dying. And then, of course, when the spirit of the doctor is watching over the kids um, as they leave the orphanage at the end. Such great performances, such great emotion, such great characters. That's where it comes from. It comes from these well-written characters, these characters that Del Toro clearly cares about um, and, and wants us to care about as well. And, and it's all these characters that, are, like I said, broken people watching over broken people. It's it's certainly so wonderful. Um, availability for uh, The Devil's Backbone. As I was recording the episode with Sean, it seemed like it was available for free if you were uh, an Amazon Prime membership or, or member. That is unfortunately not the case anymore. Um, it's available for rental and or purchase on Vudu and Amazon are the two places where you're going to be uh, likely most to find it. Though I suppose there are some of you weirders out there who like to rent things from YouTube. You can do it through there. Um, also the uh, PlayStation Store as well. But um, seek it out for Amazon or on Amazon. It's only about 3 or $4 for a rental. Um, and it is well worth your time. Like I said, don't be like me. Don't go in expecting something which is going to terrify you, which is going to scare you, which is going to really, boo, you know, make you jump in your seat. You're not going to be watching this movie with, like through your you know, through your your hands covering your eyes. It's not going to be like that because Del Toro isn't interested in scaring you. Del Toro is interested in showing you the consequences of the horrific things that people can do to other people, but also overcoming that are the beautiful and wonderful things that complicated, broken people can do when they bond together because they are the beautiful ones, because they are the strong ones. And that's so great. That was so wonderful about The Devil's Backbone. I'm so happy that Charlton recommended it. I'm so happy that I saw it. And I really hope that you uh, enjoyed watching it as well. Um, if you uh, have any feedback for the show, once again, sorry that this one might have been a little bit rough, a little bit rough and tumbly there, but I'll, I'll get back into it as I get back into the groove of regularly podcasting. If you have any feedback, I would love to hear from it. Or, <laughs> sorry, I would love to hear from you about it. Um, you can reach me via email at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com, and that is the word you, Y-O-U, domoviesbadly at gmail.com. Um, you can leave feedback on this episode uh, on the I Do Movies Badly Facebook page. Just search for I Do Movies Badly on Facebook. Um, you can catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly on iTunes, um, on idomoviesbadly.podbean.com, which is where I host everything. And, and, of course, you can engage with me uh, in the comment field of uh, Battleship Pretension, where this podcast is also hosted. Some of you have already done that, um, including my, my friend Fiction Isn't Real, who loves to disagree with me on just about everything. And let me be clear, I love that. I love talking about this stuff. I love engaging with this stuff. Your opinion is just as valid as mine, and our opinions are just as valid as those professional film critics out there, those professional podcasters, those bloggers, those writers. I love this stuff. I love it. 
and I hope you love it too. Um, I hope you enjoyed The Devil's Backbone. And um, yeah, be sure to tune in next week where I'll be covering Crimson Peak and will hopefully I'll be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.